You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, before we get started, quick word from a sponsor, FreshBooks. FreshBooks is a dead simple cloud accounting software that's saving millions of freelancers from the scourge. Yes, the scourge, I say, of dealing with their day-to-day admin and paperwork. I deal with the day to day. I was going to say, Max, uh, this is uh, this is this is your this is your area, and I know that it makes you unhappy. What makes you the most unhappy? Where do I even start? I guess I'll start with invoicing, which sucks, takes forever. Uh, with FreshBooks, it's like thirty seconds. You can create one lickety split. Another thing that I know has been an issue here is late payments. Uh, you might not make payroll if you get a late payment, and it really sucks having to send that please pay me email. That's gone with FreshBooks. They send an automated email from their FreshBooks robot, and it saves the relationship. It's Great. an amazing, amazing feature. May I never have to send one of those awkward emails again. There's a bunch of other great features. Go check it out, freshbooks.com slash longform. There's a little box that says, how did you hear about us? Put longform in there. You'll be helping the show, which starts now. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, who are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hello, Max. Who uh, Who's on the show this week? This week, Pablo Torre, or you may know him from his byline, Pablo S. Torre. Uh, he is a writer at ESPN, the magazine. Before that, he was at Sports Illustrated. Uh, and he is also on TV a lot on ESPN, the cable network. Uh, and we talked a lot about that balance, trying to balance like writing features and spending a lot of time with people with also having to have like a take on last night's game on TV. Uh, it's pretty schizophrenic life that man is leading. It's not it's not easy to get from uh, to print into the TV set. No, and he did it very, very early. And I think the question is whether or not uh, once you go TV, you can ever you can never go back. It's hard. Can you quit TV? Yeah. Well, t- TVA is as uh, a financially lucrative medium. And be it just like it's just bigger, like the whole thing just feels bigger. And uh, I think Pablo really wants to keep writing for magazines, but I'm not sure he thinks he'll be able to. Sounds good, Aaron. It, if you wanted to go bigger, well, if I wanted to go bigger and quit TV and go all email, <laughs> I'd have to do it with Mailchimp. Over eight million businesses rely on their email services to send their newsletters and updates and all kinds of stuff. Thank you, Mailchimp. And now here's Max with Pablo Torre. Hey, Pablo Torre. Hello, Max. Welcome to the podcast. It is a pleasure. You're living a, like a very cultured New York City life. When you told me, like, I need to get out of here at a certain <laughs> time because I'm going to the ballet, I, I, I was struck by that. <laughs> I will confess that I appreciated how my brand would be shaped by sharing that with you. I like to be more cultured than I probably am when I'm, you know, on my couch watching, like, the late replay of a TNT playoff game at 1 a.m. because I have nothing else to really occupy my brain. Do you have to watch everything? The secret of my job as somebody who essentially does like long form features and simultaneously is one of these gas baggy types on sports television who must be plugged into the daily and weekly news cycle. Uh, The secret is 
There is a pie chart for what sports we talk about at ESPN. Uh, it is not a secret. Hockey fans can tell you how <laughs> diminishingly small, outside of fights and injuries, uh, how little attention they get. Okay, so we're in the NBA playoffs right now. Do you have to watch every NBA playoff game? No, I, I don't. I could get away with not doing that. Well, the funny thing about sports and talking about sports on television is you're not really diving into the X's and O's. You ultimately are going to big picture places. One of my my hobby horses in, in, in talking about sports is process and results. And we're so results driven that you can kind of reverse engineer where the conversation's going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you get a sense of like, what are the highlights from this game? Plus, how did this game end? Plus, what are the smart people who study statistics saying about this game? And what are the conventional wisdom type people saying about this game? You can triangulate an opinion that seems like you watched it. Uh, but no, I, I actually love the NBA. So I watch all of these things. Would you tell me if you didn't watch it? I think I would. I don't watch a lot of football, honestly. I don't watch a lot of entire football games. Uh I red zone it, and I do the thing where, like, I like to walk around my neighborhood (laughs) (laughs) on a Sunday day, on a Sunday when it's sunny. Go take in a ballet or whatnot. I want to get back to to your TV work, but I realized, I know, like, post-college, somehow very young writing large features for Sports Illustrated... I don't know anything pre that Pablo, Pablo. Ooh, that guy's weird. (laughs) Tell me, like, where are you from? I'm from Manhattan. Born and raised. No shit. Murray Hill. Yeah, which was, at the time, it was not a place where all of the young investment bankers and consultants would go and vomit. (laughs) Uh, It was not that place. It was a place for good old-fashioned family values. Um, But no, I'm from there, from the Kips Bay area. What do your folks do? They're doctors, ah. which shapes a lot of the weirdness of, <laughs> of, of the uh, forthcoming description I'm going to give you. But I was, and I say this with no amount of haughtiness and with every amount of insecurity, I was like a big overachiever academically, or I tried to be. And so, yeah, parents, doctors, first-generation American, parents from the Philippines. So there was a whole, like, I'm going to graduate school in some form kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for a long time, it was medical school. And then I got to college and realized, oh, wait a minute. You are the kids who are studying to go to medical school? Wow. Wait, what was it like when you went home to Murray Hill and uh, waded through the vomiting investment bankers to tell your parents that you weren't going to be a doctor? I I went to a... uh, one of the big introductory meetings for aspiring biology majors, took a flyer. We should say you went to Harvard. I, I went to Harvard. Yes, yes, yes. You, I, I'm not going to let you slow play the fact that you went to Harvard. I know. It, it, it would have been so much douchier if you did. So thank you for <laughs> saving me from that. But I went to the introductory biology major meeting and took the flyer and put it in a drawer and immediately realized that all of these kids were so much better at math and science than me. Not close. And by high school, I sort of knew that I was not going to like really be math and science but I was like really, really reckoning with that reality. And so when I went home, like the conversation uh, that involved me saying I'm not going to medical school started that freshman year conversation when I went home for like Thanksgiving. Yeah. And it continued for like six years. (laughs) (laughs) Like my mom is still kind of hoping that medical school is next. (laughs) So I don't know if I'm totally... I've totally extricated myself from that just yet. But it wasn't like, uh, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a TV gas bag. You were like, I am. (laughs) I'm going to go to law school. Yeah, it was like, I don't think I'm going to do. I I don't think I can do this. And I was like doing high school debate. So this was not a huge You were one of those guys. Yeah, I was the president of my. I was the president (laughs) of my high school debate team. My high school didn't have a football team. Um, So there was like a weird uh, cultishness around the debate team. Ah. Yeah. So I was that guy. 
Did you play sports? Uh, last organized sporting event I participated in was CYO basketball. So Catholic youth organization basketball in like sixth grade. Really? Yeah. Like you didn't even play middle school sports? No, no. <laughs> like I didn't grow up with softball or did you, middle league. Or... Did you like sports or were you just like studying oh, for I the played... like medical bar exam? Yeah, yeah, like, that is. I, I played sports on weekends all the time. Yeah. Like, badly with friends in an unregulated and an organized fashion. I was studying, man. You were working. Yeah, I was trying to like go to Harvard and I was trying to then become a doctor <laughs> and look where the hell I am now. <laughs> when when did you start writing? Yeah, so I was always writing for the for the Crimson for the student newspaper, writing columns, I had a blog, you know, and uh and writing features and I really enjoyed it. I was always a huge huge reader and and someone who wanted to write in some form. Mm -hmm. Like law school is the place where you go if you're like, I want to write and use my English language brain and make money. And that was always a lie. Yeah. It never really set in until I saw friends go to law school and they're like, yo, there is no English language skills being used here. (laughs) I am coding documents. Uh, And so... I was doing the newspaper, and and I was uh, I majored in sociology. Did the paper feel like uh, like a hobby, like an extracurricular totally, activity? Totally. The thing you love doing, but it couldn't be the thing you did. Yeah, exactly. I was never thinking about journalism as a career mm-hmm. at that point, uh, and not until honestly I took the LSAT my senior year, and I was like, oh, I didn't do as well on this as I thought I would. And then friends were like, don't worry about it. Like there is a a, a thing where you take a gap year. And you learn about yourself and you become a better adjusted person. And then you go to grad school. And by that point, I had been an intern at SportsIllustrated.com. I think it was the summer after junior year. Uh And I was offered a job as a fact checker. Luckily, and I was very grateful. That's not like I was randomly offered this thing. and I was like demeaning it in considering it. But after the LSAT score came in, I was like, wait a minute. I can do that gap year thing and save face and, and study for the LSAT. So... What I did was uh, the first week at SI was preceded the previous week by taking the LSAT a second time. (laughs) And I took the LSAT a second time and ultimately I did better on it. But by the time I got my score back, I was- Yeah, you have to wait a while. Yeah, you got to wait. But anyway, I got it back and I was like, I think I'm going to stick this out. I have five years till this expires. And at a certain point, the thing expired and the boat was burned, as they say. (laughs) I had no recourse to return. How's your mom doing? She's not a sports fan. My dad is a middling sports fan, but my mom doesn't know anything about sports. And so honestly, seeing me on TV in any capacity is, is, is some legitimacy. You were validated once you were on TV? It's a very superficial thing. My mom sounds superficial when I say it. No, I think that's like, but, how, it's like how America works. Right, exactly. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Your mom is not alone. My mom is an American. You know, I started doing TV, getting plugged in when I was at Sports Illustrated because SI, Time Life Building is in midtown Manhattan, right next to Fox News, right next to 30 Rock where MSNBC is, right next to Columbus Circle, basically where CNN is. And so the first thing I did for TV was the O'Reilly Factor. Really? So summer of 2008, the Beijing Olympics happens. Beijing, naturally, opposite time zone. Sure. Everyone who knows anything about the Olympics swimming, Michael Phelps, is gone or asleep. And uh, the O'Reilly Factor calls our PR department and, you know, Mr. O'Reilly wants to talk about Michael Phelps tonight. Do you have anybody? And they were like, we have this uh, fact-checking law student? (laughs) Absolutely. We have this recovering, uh, (laughs) high-achieving fact-checker. And yeah, they plugged me in and I sat across from Bill O'Reilly. You were what, like 23, 24? Yeah, 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 yeah. First year out of college. Yeah. I believe 2008, yes. I graduated 2009, 2008. 
I sat across from him and it was terrifying. And this was like right after the we'll do it live meme slash video, actual video, not meme, actual thing happened. Yeah. And so it was all very surreal. And I sat there very well prepared to talk about Michael Phelps and basically sat there and listened to Bill O'Reilly recount <laughs> his high school swimming career. Holy shit. I- I can't imagine how nervous I would have been to go on Fox News. It was so much that I think it was it was it was it was numbing. It was surreal to the point of this doesn't feel this feels out of body. <laughs> and if you go back and thankfully this video does not exist anymore, but there is at one point there was at one point a video and the video is mostly me listening as previously described to Bill O'Reilly, but the camera must as I learned that day my first day of television, the camera must cut to the guest. There are occasional one-shots of the guest. And it's just me sitting there looking terrified. And I'm just listening. And that's when I learned, oh, wait a minute. The listening face. Listening (laughs) face is very important in this business. And that was a lesson that served me well until today. How do you do listening face? If you've ever seen, like, what is popularly the most objectionable form of ESPN sports television, sports talk television, first take. Yes. Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless. Have you done that show? No. It is... I think also an out-of-body type of experience to imagine sitting across from them. Although, I will say, the New York Daily News recently called me smug, arrogant, and condescending and said that I was a perfect fit to replace Skip Bayless on first take. <laughs> so I guess I'm now in the mix now that, I, now that I think about it. But what you do is you watch that show and you watch that split screen they do and just watch those guys listen. And it's theatrical. And that's arguably too much. But there is like a... I'm now cocking my head to an angle. Yeah. I'm raising an eyebrow, yeah. pursing lips. Kind you just, of you just did like a little like rock face. Yeah. You're kind of smelling what the rock is cooking as often <laughs> as possible. And, and there's a whole performative dynamic to television. Like the thing that you learn is that energy is muted through the camera. And so being more energetic, more exaggerated tends to be brought back to life after it's transmitted through your television in the living room. So. You kind of have to overdo it a little bit, which is something that I'm also quite self-conscious of when I'm doing the people's eyebrow or whatever <laughs> the, the rock branded it. So when you walked out of Bill O'Reilly's studio, you're 23, you're, you're still fact-checking? Yes. Were you like, I've seen the future and the future is TV? <laughs> <laughs> I left thinking, I think I can do this. Not this specifically, but I think I can survive interviews I think if this is the worst that's going to happen to me or the most intimidating, then this shouldn't be that bad. And yeah, so what happened was, to your point, they just threw me into everything. And CNN needs someone to talk about Lawrence Taylor allegedly raping some like underage girl. You go there. I have no idea. I've, I wasn't alive probably when Lawrence Taylor was like drafted. Speaking to your earlier question about how much do you watch anything, the first TV stuff I did was stuff that I had no actual like expertise on. I was basically an educated sports fan slash fact checker going on TV representing the brand of Sports Illustrated and pontificating, which is kind of cool training and also in retrospect, like very fraudulent. Were people in Sports Illustrated like, uh, hey, why is the fact checker on TV all the time? <laughs> I think so. I think there was that vibe, but I was also like fairly hapless for a large amount of this. Uh, and I don't think they necessarily wanted to do it. I mean, Sports Illustrated, which I which I credit with like teaching me how to do any of this, the writing stuff, they weren't like into it. And to their credit, like virtuously not into it. Like they were writers. <laughs> they are writers. So I don't think they were necessarily like jealous, but there probably was some, why is he representing all of us? How do you start balancing uh, hot taken on Tiger Woods on CNN and writing these 
long features for Sports Illustrated. Like those, those feel like very different muscles. Yeah, arguably the opposite muscles uh, uh, within we, we, the we, skeletal system of the sports journalist. Yeah. So I mean, how how did you uh, how did you balance that? How do you approach, especially when like you didn't have a ton of experience doing this? Yeah, I was I was basically writing front of the book small items, fact checking most of the time and pitching like long features that I was working on basically in my free time and then being plugged in to do TV stuff. So very different things. But what I realized in an attempt to be less fraudulent, uh, because I was self-aware at the time about the fraudulence, I need to be prepared. And so I pre-wrote a lot in a very kind of sad and unnecessary way. But I'd come in. Sounds like an overachieving Pablo. Yeah, no, there's 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 a lot of like ethnic stereotyping that I'm definitely living up to right now and definitely did live up to at the time. I would prepare. I would pre-write sentences that I wanted to say. I would pre-write witticisms and I would memorize facts, you know, and, and everything I did, I was, you know, I wasn't like going in there hot taking for the sake of hot taking. I was hot taking having prepared to hot take, um, <laughs> which is, I think, slightly better. So writing to me has always been the core of like TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the best people who do it certainly rely on that less and less. Um, there's a spontaneity and an extemporaneous nature to it. But I always need to like r- my iPhone is like my notes app is just like a, a junk drawer of of insane half formed thoughts. But I always need to write it out before I say it. So those two things are more connected than they would appear. Absolutely. And it's, again, it may be deficiency, but I need to spell it out. Like the number one thing I learned about TV, as may be apparent by my rambling nature, is that like I have only so much time. There's an economy to this. And if I want to squeeze and create density of information or or insight, then I can't just roll in there and, and rely on like what's going to flow to the top of my brain. I need to go in with some sort of plan. And that's still true today, honestly. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second and uh, tell you quickly about a sponsor who's been sponsoring us for the last couple of weeks. That sponsor is Johnson & Johnson, and we really appreciate their support, uh, not just for long form, but their support of nurses. There's a guide up right now, a collection of articles, our favorite stories ever written about nurses. You should check it out. There's a link in the show notes. And uh, I just want to thank Johnson Johnson. They really support nurses. There are more than 4 million in America. It's a thankless job. If you or someone you know has been in the hospital lately, if they've needed some help, you know that nurses are the people who really run those places. They are the people who are there in your darkest moments, and um, they don't get thanked very much. So thanks to Johnson & Johnson for thanking them and for supporting us. Also supporting the show this week, our friends at Squarespace. And uh, if you need a website, they're going to be your friends too. Squarespace is the easiest way, the best way, really the only way to get a website up. They have these beautiful templates, whether it's a, for a personal blog, a portfolio, your business. If you just need a landing page, you got a good idea, but you haven't totally built it out yet, and you want to put something up, Squarespace is the place to go. Uh, it's super easy. You don't need to know a lick of code. Everything's just drag and drop, and these templates work on any device. If you hit a snag, you won't, but if you do, they've got 24-7 customer support. And I can tell you this. This is a true thing. I had to build a website not two weeks ago, and I had to do it very quickly. I had like maybe half an hour to get something up, and Squarespace allowed me to do it. The thing looks great. It looks super professional. I got compliments on it, and I was like, thank you. I worked very hard on that website. I did not work very hard on that website. So if you want compliments on a website that you didn't work very hard on, 
Go to squarespace.com. It's totally free to try it. If you decide to sign up, enter the promo code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Thanks to Squarespace, and let's get back to Pablo. I wanted to talk to you about TV, but uh, the show that we do here is like ostensibly about writing. Yes. And it's funny to People me. People are already furious. Well, it, it's of note, I think. That, like, I wanted to talk to you about writing in this portion of when we were talking, but it's hard not to talk about TV. Like, I wonder whether being on TV still sort of overshadows this work. Like, whether whether it, it ends up taking most of the air in the room, kind of like it's taking... All the time. Uh, and I'm self-conscious about it because I take pride and probably take more visceral degree of difficulty related satisfaction from coming out with the story uh-huh. uh, like a good long feature is still the most satisfying thing to do because it's the hardest thing to do to me it's still harder than than any of the tv things that i do it's the most labor intensive it's the most solitary it's the most neurosis inducing and it's no secret like there's a club of people at espn i can't speak for other cable networks but if you look at tony kornheiser michael wilbon dan lebetard the guys who we regard as like preeminent sports TV talking heads were writers. All of them. Long form writers often. Yeah. And what Dan and I talk about in my moments of crisis when I'm like stressing about something, you know, there's there's inevitably the tongue in cheek and yet also very honest expression of you're going to stop writing. None of those guys write anymore, right? They basically have stopped or they write one-offs. And Dan writes some stuff and he's still very good at it when he does it, but... Clearly, he's doing a radio show and a TV show. So the economics don't support, by the way, the other ratio. You know, like there is a very clear incentive structure that says, stop writing. <laughs> and I don't want to give into it. And I luckily, you know, I'm not like being forced to do that by any stretch, nor would I be so privileged as to say, I'm going to stop writing today and they'd be cool with it. It's a total identity kind of crisis thing that I think about more often than I'd probably like to admit. Oh, it's funny. I mean, like using Kornheiser as an example, like Kornheiser right now is known as a TV guy. Almost exclusively. Almost exclusively. Yes. Like six months ago, I went down a crazy Kornheiser like archives yeah. rabbit hole. Rick Barry. It's amazing. Dude. No, he was, he was like one of the best ever. On fire. Yeah. And his, and his wit came through and like you kind of sense where this guy came from. Right. Well, you can see reading those stories being like, ah, maybe this guy be all right on TV. But it's, it's wild to me that that's no part of him anymore. Yeah. And, and I still don't relate to that. And I'm glad that I don't. I'm glad that there is a sense of like alienation <laughs> when I see a writer who doesn't do it anymore. Not because I think, oh, I am here on Journalism Island and they are not. Right. Just because... Again, for vain, cynical reasons, I'm like, I still need to keep doing this. You were just saying, like, the economics sure don't support, like, continuing to write. How does it work? Like, how do you get paid? When I was hired at ESPN, I was hired as a magazine writer, senior writer, which I still am. No TV included in the contract. And so everything I did was on top of that contract. So there was clearly an incentive to be, like, on TV a lot. There was a financial incentive. Like, you literally got paid every time you went on? Yes. That sounds great. Yeah, because it was it, it, the trade-off is you have no security. Right. You have no insurance that we're going to use you. Except you also had this other contract, so you did have some security. Yeah, yeah, but I mean from the TV side. Right, right Like right, the whole right. joy of it was they, they will pay me whenever they use me, but also 
they may never use me and there's no obligation to use me. Right. But since then, I, I'm on my second contract now at ESPN. I've been there since October 2012. And now it's all folded in. And how do you negotiate those two polls? Like, does someone call you and they're like, we need you uh, to host Around the Horn today, that feature you're working on, shelve it? Like, there, how- It's so big that there isn't that type of unilateral directive. The thing that I did not know when I went over to ESPN from Sports Illustrated, which was not a slam dunk decision, incidentally, I was like, I love my lifestyle here. I love SI. I love all of this. But I wanted to be multi-platform in that very, you know, again, it's such a meaningless term now, multi-platform, like yeah. all of these things. But you wanted platform. to do the TV stuff too. Yeah, I wanted to do more than just write. I wanted to see if I could do TV stuff. And so my big ambiguity about that was, will they appreciate the TV work at the magazine? as work. And and luckily they do. One of the things about ESPN that I am immensely grateful for is them realizing that when I am doing TV or when I am reporting on a feature, and I've basically said no to both sides of that numerous times because of the conflicts, they see that there is an ultimate unified self-interest. Right. It's all in the best interest of the of the behemoth. Right. And they're big enough where they don't need me necessarily for every little thing. They'll just get the next person. Is your contract with the magazine like to write a certain number of stories a year? Or is it like when you can write them, you write them? There is no number. And so I like it that way. And maybe I will regret (laughs) the fact that it's that way. But I basically always have something on my plate or Uh a couple things on my plate. But in terms of deadline, I have a good, I have a nice wide berth um, where they're understanding about it. There's a story that from the Sports Illustrated days that I feel like I need to ask you about. Mm -hmm. I feel like it remains the like definitive Pablo story, which is the how and why athletes yeah. go broke story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, it's basically about um, how and why athletes go broke. Mm, and yes, yes, yes. I remember reading it when it came out and it was one of those things, as soon as I started reading it, I was like, how has this story not been done? Right. It's fascinating. It, it, everyone wants to hear Thank about you. money and how money works at the highest levels. And it turns out in for professional sports for this quite awful menagerie of reasons it works terribly. Yeah. Where were you at in your Sports Illustrated? Like That was came out 2009. So, I mean, you, you were right out of school still. Yeah, I was working on that for like a year. Was that your idea checker. or was it assigned or what? That was my idea, yeah. And, and you're right because you look back and you're like, wow, this is hitting very TMZ-friendly notes. Yeah, there's like some voyeurism. And totally. also there's like some weird schadenfreude stuff, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. No, like the very base things that we think tends to surface stories did not surface this one um, in that definitive or hopefully definitive way. But but I was just seeing, I was like, I, I was trying to write, and this sounds craven, but I wanted to write a 5,000 word feature. And, and I was like, I want to come into Sports Illustrated and work my way into getting what they call a bonus piece. Sure. Um, the big back of the book, long feature. And what I realized was, okay, they're not going to get me to do uh, a feature on a person. That's not going to be what they see me as. So I got to pitch something. Well, I just, who am I? You're the guy who does all the TV. I'm the fact checker dude who sits across from Bill O'Reilly and gets yelled at about Michael Phelps (laughs) and breathing technique. So they weren't going to come to you and say. I had no expectation that they would. Like, hey, uh, I don't know. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wants to open up. Like, hey, you do this. No, I wasn't going to get that. And so what I realized was I would need to bring something of tangible like newsworthiness or insight or some concrete thing that no one else had seen. And what I realized was I couldn't do that, but what I could do was synthesize a bunch of other stuff that when synthesized together would approximate 
an anatomy of an issue that people maybe didn't fully understand. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do was I'd like have Google alerts set up for like bankruptcy and sports and, and broke and these words. And so I would just have the notes file that was just growing and growing. And then I realized there is enough here for me to make a, a typology of, of, of reasons. And then you just report around it. And so in terms of access, it wasn't so much an access-driven story. It wasn't so much a big celebrity-driven story. It was this thing that I could piece together like, you know, it's a cliche, but like a puzzle over time when no one was bothering me. Right. And then I almost basically wrote it on spec. It was like your Skunk Works project. Yes, yes. In my computer on a file that, on a folder that no one else wanted to see nor what I want to show them was this thing. And yeah, I basically showed it to them when it was pretty much ready to be not published, but like there was, a, there were thousands of words. And that was the first big story that you yep. had sort of pitched and worked on there? Yeah. And you, yeah. and you like delivered it done? I delivered it not done, but like the skeleton was there. I was bringing everything that I could to the table. How'd and you know how to do that? I had just written a thesis in college. Like that last big project I did was a thesis in college. Um, Hold on. Sympathy for the devil, <laughs> child homicide, victim characteristics, and the sentencing preferences of the American conscience. And um, it did not feel perfectly connected to, to the current work that you do. Yeah, it has. It has. The only connective tissue is that it's very long. And, and I think of everything in this way, including the TV stuff, but especially the writing, uh, I think of structure first. I think of the architecture of something. And if I can get one section that says this and this and this, and the how and why athletes go broke was the most arguably simplistic and transparent way to do it. It's like, here are five reasons that are supported by reporting. Right. And they're tying together, driving towards a conclusion. But ultimately, you know, it was kind of like writing a paper. It was the most academic type writing that I probably have done ever huh. uh, as, as a sports writer. Did, did your editors know you were working on it? I think what happened was, as I was putting together this file, I would talk to the chief of reporters, Richard D. Mack, who's the guy who hired me, who was an amazing dude. And... I would keep them posted. And at a certain point, it was a conversation that we were having that was just kind of ongoing and ongoing. But yeah, I mean, I would be making calls and talking to him about it because I didn't know how to do anything also. Well, I was that's, also what, like, that's kind of what I'm asking yeah, yeah, is yeah. like, like <laughs> I'm not remembering, right? Like I had to be taught how to like, you know, book a flight, <laughs> you know, and I had to be taught how to like, you know, uh, to to be a, a a journalist who's on the up and up, like, can I get dinner for this source? You know, like all that stuff. So he was handholding me. Right. I should in, say in that. this story, it would have been like you kind of needed to buy people dinner too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And there are a couple of people I was talking to, and uh, financial advisors, agents, and so forth. And and I got help. I should not say that it was delivered on spec from like, you know, Deus Ex Machina. Here is your back of the book thing. But the writing, I, I felt, was was mostly a private exercise, yeah. It's a pretty sensitive topic. And the people in the story are sympathetic but do not come off looking great. Correct. Did you have a feel at that point for how to have those conversations with them? Like, that, that strikes me as a very difficult, how did you blow millions of dollars? I right. know already that the answer is something pretty dumb. Right, right, right. Uh, in Tory Hunter's case, uh, and he did not go fully bankrupt, but he definitely lost a ton of money investing in inflatable furniture. I guess inflatables that you would put under furniture and then in flood affected areas. And your couch rises to the top. Yeah, you would just float off safely. Um, so yeah, that that was embarrassing. But I think it helped always to get a, a conduit to get an intermediary. So whether it's an agent or financial advisor. So none of this stuff was like 
Hi, I'm Pablo from Sports Illustrated. How did you lose? There is some lubrication. They were all also mostly people who were actively working on trying to not let other people fall into the same. Yeah, so framing it, and, and this is something that I try to do still, but you've gone through this thing that was terrible or at the very least unrelatable or something that seemed private, and yet I'm sure there are things about this that you want to share with others. And, you know, I, I, I'm hesitant to, to verge into full-on advocacy. Like, I'm not trying to do that, but I do want to give them a sense that this is driving towards a bigger picture. Like, this is not going to be a slideshow, and I'm just assembling captions for the 10 dumbest ways athletes went broke. And honestly, the biggest way to do it, which is going back again to my uh, neurosis about overpreparation, is just show that you did the homework and approach it very earnestly and, and vulnerably yourself. And so when I would interview these guys, I would be so well prepared about not just talking about them, but but like... You know, how do the unions help you? How do the leagues help you? How have they not helped you? There are all of these questions that I had that also took it outside of their own personal context. Yeah. My number one thing also going back to why this story appealed to me, because I don't, I I will say this is again, making me sound, uh, as the Daily News put it, smug, arrogant, and condescending. Most of my friends are not sports fans. And my parents are not. Brother and sister, no. And so- I just want to make things that I that they can read and want to read. Uh-huh. And so there's always like the big litmus test for me in finding that story is worth investing my time into. Uh, and the stuff I do now is, is somebody who doesn't give a shit about sports going to be interested in this? Huh. And so that's always been like my guiding principle. Um, and I've been lucky enough to be indulged recently with that. But I'm always looking for the big idea. And so as much as I want their dirt, this specific athlete's dirt about how he messed up or what was embarrassing, I'm always looking to relate that to some sort of broader thing. Because probably people don't necessarily know about Rocket Ismail and and how, uh, why that guy is self-justifyingly interesting. That story was huge. Apparently traffic-wise, yeah. it, it led SI.com for a long time. ESPN turned it into a 30 for 30, basically. Yeah, and that was the week that I was hired. So it was very, it was very weird. <laughs> but I, I, I wonder, I mean, that's your first story your first big like bonus story in the magazine and it did this fantastic traffic it did kind of expose this or tie together at the very least this kind of undercurrent that had been a conversation around sports for a while i feel it became like. easily googleable at that point how did that change things for you like did did that story come out and you just kind of like went back to fact checking and and doing your thing or or did that did that change the course of your career somehow so i think i Still fact-checked, although decreasingly less year after year for, like, the next four years. Like, I was fact-checking for four out of my five years at Sports Illustrated. Even when I was a staff writer, fifth year, that was, like, the final liberation from the fact-checking minds. So also a lot of what I learned to do in general was from fact-checking and copying like, oh, this is how this guy's notes file looks, right. and this is how... so. You, that's, I mean, you that's pick a, that is a secret that has been spilled on this podcast. Yeah, no, and like, I've heard it. Like, like, yes, fact checking is uh, like the best J school. Yeah, you you can have, have to force. You get to force these like very accomplished writers into answering your questions, <laughs> and at a certain point, they may not realize that this has nothing to do with actually the thing you're fact checking. No, but it did change things because it showed that I could do it. And it's all. I mean, the entire career I've had in media is about being thrown into a pool, or in this case. Jumping into a pool uh, after hours, essentially, and being very demonstrative and showing that I can swim. Um, and so what happened was, from then, I, I got to pitch other long stories. So I did. I, I think the next thing I pitched, 
I forget the order of events, but I pitched a story on, on mental illness in baseball. And another one of these long, almost verging on academic things, but a back burner type project. But they were like, oh, you can do that because you did this thing. Well, that also really hits two things that you just mentioned, which is one, a story that relates and and will be relatable to people who are not in sports. Right. And two, this thing that for some reason sports has been unwilling or unable to kind of address and reckon with. Like me- mental health in sports feels to me like the great next beat in sports. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's it's still something we handle terribly. And it's again one of those things where like no one wants to talk about suicide attempts. If you're a pro athlete and you're again, I'm me and I'm going up to you and saying, "Hey, I want to talk to you about this." But you find that there are entry points, again, whether it's through mutual friends or through sheer earnestness about the topic. Yeah, I mean, this is, I try to get to stuff that, for whatever reason, has, has not been synthesized as, as fully and as, as, as distinctly. And, and yeah, that was one of those stories. Can I go back to something you were just saying? Yeah. Which is like, you, you, uh, you described your career as like getting thrown into the pool and, and uh, figuring out how to swim. There are probably many people listening desperate to get thrown in the pool, desperately trying to figure out how to get thrown in the pool <laughs> or just like get pointed in the direction yeah, of just the, know pool. the pool. Where's the pool? Yeah. Can like, we have a pool in my neighborhood? Yeah. Just all of like, that is... draw me some sort of map <laughs> to where uh, some other town that has a pool. Like, right. What was it about you that got you that first internship at Sports Illustrated that like they were like, that's the kid we sent to O'Reilly. Let's like go with this bonus piece, even though he's never written one before. Like what, what, why, how'd you find the pool? Why, I, why were you the one that got yeah, thrown in? Yeah. I guess it's, it's as much, yeah. Getting thrown in as it is me, like standing outside the gate and like putting letters underneath being like, Hey, can you let me in? Just wearing like swim trunks every day. <laughs> Goggles all the time. Um, no, I think there's some amount of very reckless ambition. Like, I think I can do this. Um, so there's some like, J.R. Smithian level of self-confidence, which I think is part of it. But it's also, there's a lot of work in terms of getting enough credibility to seem like a person on the list of people who they might consider throwing in. And some part of that is probably credentialism. Like, oh, this kid went to Harvard. Like, sure, he gets a longer leash than others for totally superficial reasons. But beyond that, it's like, can this person, has this person impressed me in my interactions with them? And so I try to have smart conversations with my editors and with producers. And I try to like approach this from a recklessly ambitious place, but also from a place that they probably haven't been familiar with. So the pool that I'm actually going into is is the same pool. But again, this is a very tortured metaphor, which yeah, will we... destroy my credibility. But I'm like doing weird backstrokes. <laughs> I'm like trying to do stuff that people aren't doing necessarily, even the people who are in the pool already. And a lot of that opportunity to weirdly backstroke is because I've been backstroking like on land for a while. And I'm like trying to show people, hey, I'm a guy. If you put me in this pool, I'm still going to do this and I'm probably going to float. <laughs> this is a very, very tortured, very weird place to have ended up. No, I think it makes sense. Is there anything that you wish you had done differently? As a Sports Illustrated employee? Yeah, like when you were trying to figure out what you wanted to be doing in your recklessly ambitious backstroking on land period. Right. Do you have any like regrets? Is there anything that didn't go right? Oh, I remember the first time I was yelled at. Or not yelled, scolded. At some point, like probably being a little bit too big for my britches and like showing up late to like a meeting where I was like the fact checker. 
because I was like on something else that I considered very important and vital. Uh huh. And you got to get the sit down from an editor who's like, who was very right to do so and be like, hey, you're like showing up late to this stuff. You are a fact checker. Do you remember what your salary is? And I was like, <laughs> oh, right. Right. Um, so there was, I mean, yes, inevitably, like in trying to do the Skunk Works project, you're probably, you know, trying to shift the pie chart of responsibilities in your favor before you're necessarily asked to do so. And I felt shitty about that. But I've been lucky, man. I've been super lucky. The fact that I'm not in law school right, or I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer right now is like this enduringly, enduringly serendipitous reality. Because there's an alternate version of me that is still work right now and is like, you know, <laughs> definitely not wearing a T-shirt. Definitely not wearing a T-shirt. Probably not going to make it on time to the ballet. Nope. Nope. And uh, and that person is very unhappy. Like, I don't know. Like, journalism was not for all the regrets that I had in terms of like, you know, getting getting scolded for for tardiness um, as a fact checker. I don't want to play that game because I like so much where it ended up, which is a terrible thing to jinx yourself with. <laughs> incidentally, that seems healthy. I want to talk about some of these stories that you've been doing for ESPN. Yeah. Uh, because they feel different to me in their sort of scope and ambition than the Sports Illustrated stuff. Yes. So it's interesting to hear you talk about it now, like going thinking back to your Sports Illustrated stuff. You've got like how and why athletes go broke, mental health and baseball. There's a great piece about like Mark Eaton and basically like what yeah. life as a seven foot tall yep. non-basketball player is, <laughs> uh, which is complicated. And... I went skiing with Mark Eaton. That was not in the piece at all. Um, like after the piece, you guys just hung out. No, so I, oh, so actually, to to let's rewind to my regrets. Okay, I have regrets. All right, shouldn't have gone skiing with Mark Eaton. No, <laughs> no should have written about going. So one of the things that I felt, I go back and read my stuff from SI. I failed the following test more often than I would like. I now ask myself, what is the thing that I'm most motivated to tell my friends when I'm done with a reporting trip? Uh, what's the headline that I lead with? And oftentimes that did not make it into the stories that I wrote. And I think that's, again, like a function of the structural kind of thinking. Like I'm making a Sports Illustrated feature. No first person is, number one, like a huge obstacle yeah, in that never in that path. Um, but also like I think there is a, a thing I want to say in this piece, and this is kind of an aside – I didn't know how to deal or think creatively enough or nimbly enough to incorporate asides. So Mark Eden and I went to Deer Valley, like the nicest ski resort in, in, in America. And I wore like his oversized, I didn't wear his, wear his, but I wore like oversized ski gear that he had in his house. <laughs> and we went skiing. I had not gone skiing in like 10 years and I would fall down often. And we went to like a fairly intermediate slope, which was, I think, again, reckless ambition on my part. But it was the thing where I'd be like snotting. I'd have like mucus on my face and I'd be like in the snow. And along comes Mark Eaton, who was seven feet four in his real life. And on skis is... is Basically 12 feet tall. Yeah. Uh, as far as I could tell, he was, he, was, he, was, he was Goliath. And he would pick me up with one hand. <laughs> and I'm like, how did I not incorporate that into that story? And, That's funny. And I mean, they are kind of straight. They felt very aspirationally Sports Illustrated when I read them now. Huh. That's um, interesting. There's a house style that I tried to hew to. And, and the other example of this, now that I think about it, Mike Tyson. I wrote this piece on Mike Tyson. Uh, I think it was almost 4,000 words or thereabouts. I went to Mike Tyson's home for six hours. Mike Tyson uh, basically picked me up, positioned me in front of him, and said, okay, you're the prostitute and I'm the pimp. And reenacted the time that he was a pimp in Las Vegas, breaking into 
the rooms of John's to collect. That, story? that didn't go in the story. <laughs> and at that point, I think I look back and I'm like, I think it's because I was writing a feature about the redemption of Mike Tyson. And like reveling in this, I don't know if I was like caught in my own like box or not. But Wait, it was. Do you think you didn't put that in because it didn't fit with the narrative you had decided that's to my go in fear, with? Here is that like I had. I, I don't think it was as obvious at the time that I was doing that. Yeah. But I think I was like, I want to tell a story about this guy and how he's different, and him reveling in this while interesting. I couldn't really find a good place for it. I mean, just hearing you talk about it, maybe it's a little bit just an element of like high degree of difficulty and also in some way you are already kind of like punching above your weight. I would read like these GQ stories, like these first person stories. I remember reading uh, Andrew Corsello on Manny Pacquiao. Yeah. I did the first story for SI ever, Manny Pacquiao, a profile of him. It was like 2,500 words, but I was, I'm Filipino. So I was like, this is, this is a thing. This is a story where I could pitch a profile. Yeah. That was the first profile I ever did. And I got a sense of all the stuff that dude described, the absurdity. I didn't have the Filipino uh, politician with the photo of like genitals beaten into a pulp in his wallet. That I did not have. But I had a lot of the color and the absurdity and the strangeness. And, and again, in 2,500 words, like that wasn't the story. You know, it was about who is this guy. And so from the beginning, I have, yeah, I have actually I have many regrets Lots of stories that never made it that I kind of tell now, like the Mark Eden thing. Like, yeah, I would lead with that. Yeah, like the thing that you you were not including the thing that you would come home and like tell your friend over a beer. Right. And now I try to be better about that. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because the, the ESPN stuff, A, you're in them a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> and there are a lot of moments in the ESPN stories where it's really you sitting with someone and talking about like kind of the dynamic in the room. Yes, and oftentimes it's kind of weird telling details and people being like a little awkward. And people not wanting to talk to me. Yeah. It's a lot of that also. Yeah. Well, I mean, in part, I assume that Mark Eaton doesn't get a lot of phone calls Correct. saying, let's talk about being 7-4. Doing a big profile of James Harden or the story that you just did on LeBron and Wade, I assume that is a very negotiated process. Yeah. one of, the, In fact, so negotiated the James Harden thing. The last section of the story took place during the photo shoot for the story. <laughs> I would love the scene of James Harden rolling around his house uh, on this hoverboard thing while, like, he's singing about Chipotle. Like, I would love that. I would love to see what his house looks like. But I ended up piggybacking on the cover right. shoot. Right. And that's one of those weird things where, like, I could only have this if we're doing a cover shoot. Was that a sign, that Harden profile? Yeah. So the thing about ESPN right now is they've... Caught into assigning me a lot more than I pitch. And part of that is, I think, due to the balance of TV and, and, and feature writing. Um, but they also have taken to assigning me kind of ambitious topics and then just letting me go where they take me. So that assignment's just like James Harden. Yes. All it was was like James Harden, effectively. And so going back to the test of how can this be interesting to friends who don't know who he is... Again, like who who do people know him as? They know him as at that point the guy who's dating Khloe Kardashian, the guy with the weird beard. And I thought to myself, okay, what's is there a story there? And in fact, the story ended up being in large part about how James Harden is gaming the visibility economy that is governing how American culture tends to work now. Right. He's putting himself out there with his beard to be conspicuous. He's putting himself out there by dating a reality star, which is conspicuous. He is trying to be memorable and be quantifiable and trackable in all of these kind of cynical ways. And that parallels 
very conveniently how he plays basketball. He's trying to game the system. He likes free throws. He likes being fouled. He plays basketball like a tax attorney. You know, or if this is a line for the piece, but Steph Curry is like this rainbow launching, like magical pixie. James Harden is the guy who we hate because he is wrenching every bit of gold out of every single drive, even when it's super ugly and unsightly. Right. So, such is his reality television dalliance. So, yeah, trying to find big picture ideas in these like standard athlete assignments. That seems not easy to me. I think the reason why I reflexively go with the what did I tell my friends about this test is because now I am like workshopping assignments on my friends like hey I'm doing this James Harden story wait 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 oh the guy with the beard okay check I'm just like kind of like focus grouping this um so there's a lot more conversation I mean it's it's forced me and this is also just again part of trying to be the guy who's weirdly swimming differently yeah like there's a standard James Harden profile but I don't think even sports fans necessarily want to read that. Like, I want people to come away with this, with a thought or or an idea that they did not have lodged in their brain previously. Right, and th- and that story achieves that. Like, it's it's quite like fun. It's fun to read, and it it does make this kind of larger point about where he fits and kind of how he's played the system to become this huge star and he signed a $200 million deal with Adidas. Yes, and who would want to buy James Harden's shoes? Everybody hates him. Right. Well, it turns out everybody is trying to do the same thing that James Harden is doing. Everyone wants to be Khloe Kardashian. And this is also at the time of like Lamar and the Kardashians. This is all snowballed at a time when I was like very high on the degree of difficulty that it takes for the Kardashians to be very successful. And I still am. Like we all want to be those people, but they've succeeded. Why is that? Um, and maybe we don't give people enough credit for for at least winning at the very terrible game that a lot of people are competing at. <laughs> there are a lot of people competing. Um, there's another element of the Harden story, though, which is that he had just come off this fantastic season. He led the Rockets to the Western Conference Finals. He was second in the running for the MVP. Like, he was going to be the guy. Yep. And, like, the Rockets were, like, a sexy pick to come out of the West. Yeah. Like, I, my question is about that nature of sports writing, right. which is what's interesting is people as they are ascending, right? Mm-hmm. Not when they have ascended. And there's also something interesting about when they fall. But when you're writing about someone on the come up and then it doesn't pan out, those stories live on as this kind of strange artifact in a way. And I wonder whether you're thinking about that at all as you're writing them. Yeah. And no, part of the reason why I think I like to aspire to a bigger idea in this stuff is that I'm going to have to give you that. Like at the time, I mean, James Harden finished second in the MVP. Like even then, even if he was great, like the shelf life of a, of, oh, this guy saw that this guy who was already good was going to get better is like not that interesting. Right. And incidentally, like the, the kind of framework that I saw him in terms of that reality, visibility economy thing, like he didn't love that. I don't think. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't hear from them after that story. Um, and I usually do. You usually do. Yeah, you say like, oh, great work or nice work. You kind of calibrate based on the adjective used. Uh, silence huh. from that camp. And I think that was probably a testament to maybe I was too incisive about identifying his motives. But yeah, in my mind, to, to where I'm driving is in my mind, that story is about that. It's not even about like his skill so Reg. much. And the more I could have stories that are not so much about skill, I think the better off I would be. Well, I mean, thinking about some other pieces that you have done, 
that does seem to me like where you're very. So I'm, I'm thinking about three NBA pieces in the last year, I guess. You wrote about Jeremy Lin. Yep. Post Linsanity. Kind of like depressed hermit Jeremy Lin. Yeah, getting angry text messages from Kobe Bryant at 1 a.m. Yeah. That guy. Yeah. Uh, family and friends worried about him living in like a one bedroom apartment With in Santa a Monica. Sad sushi clock that's ticking from that's taro sushi. to tuna to salmon to. The sushi clock made me really sad. I wanted to buy a sushi clock after that, (laughs) Um, but it was also depressing. Yeah, yes, yes. That was a big uh, behind the curtain is just this sad dude. Yeah. What did you hear from that one? Because you guys were kind of friendly. The feedback I got from him was only thing I heard about that story, because they don't like to press either for responses, but haven't read it, but everybody I know tells me that it's good. Huh. And that's honestly like if I could get that response from everyone, I have not read this, so I'm not going to be sensitive to the little dig that you put in or the bit of incisiveness that you identified here. That'd be ideal. So I got that, which is, but you know, we, we had a relationship. I mean, that was also one of those stories where this is about sad basketball player, but it's actually about masculinity. And it's actually about being this Asian American guy and realizing that I am the only person who can even come close to the equivalent of like a Hollywood leading man. Like, so the, so the, so the, the friend back and forth conversation I had for that was name an Asian American romantic lead. Can you name an Asian American romantic lead? Not recently. <laughs> exactly. Which is to say like Jeremy Lin was kind of what we have or had at that point. And and so there was this reckoning of like, why, if I am this paragon of masculinity, I'm like the one of my kind, like, why is it surprising that this is especially hard to be emasculated all of the time? There's a larger segment of the story that was just about being a trailblazer and being very lonely and not having anybody to turn to and feeling pressured by expectations and the opposite form of expectations. You got it from all sides. And Kobe did not care that there's the thought exercise about Asian American leading men. He wanted to, you know, bully him to be a better basketball player. Yeah. Which was not, by the way, not always the best strategy for every basketball player is just yelling at them and calling them soft like Charmin, as he did famously on video uh, towards Jeremy. So there was a, a, a larger resonance for me specifically because there was only a couple of people who could, I think, relate to him on any level about that. Did it change the way that you think about it at all, doing that story? Did, did Lynn in general change the way that you think about that at all? I, I became more of a, wow, this is like a closet that I don't know if we need to open at this late in. But I was like, I've not always been a person who's like, I am Asian and hear me roar. But doing that piece, I was like, realizing because I'm on television... I also am like maybe like 75th on the list of like Asian American (laughs) leading men, which is not a testament to my ability to be conceivably a leading man. It's the dearth of people who are on the list. So for me, it was a very like, oh, wait a minute. I think people are seeing me in a way that I did not see myself. The response to that piece was like, thank you for all you do, like so proud of you when I see you on ESPN and all of that. And I was like, oh shit. Huh. I think I am sympathizing with Jeremy Lin 
in a way that I've never sympathized with an athlete before insofar as a, as I see myself in him. Right. And that had never been like a piece of this reckless abandon. No, no, no. This, but that was, that was a, that was an awakening to like, I think I'm a public facing figure now. Yeah. Do you like that? I mean, it's cool when you go to like Barclays and the ushers know who you are and they're not like checking your ID. Uh, that's fun. But again, I live, I, I live in existence where there are perks and no downsides yet. Uh-huh. Like there's a sweet spot in being recognized. And right now it's almost exclusively dudes who watch sports. Not the optimal mix, but it's certainly appreciated. And it's not often enough where it's an encumbrance. So it's kind of like, thank you for being out there and, and consuming my shit. Do you want it to stay at that level? Do you, do you want to be famous? I don't want to be famous. Uh, well, I guess I do. <laughs> you turn that quickly. <laughs> turn around real fast. No, I want to be heard. I have things I want to say and I want yeah. people to listen to them. And as much as I'd like to keep that sort of veneer of like intellectualism and, and, and journalistic sensibility, which I do, yeah, I think you need a platform. So that goes hand in hand. Do you think you can do both? Like, do you think that Kornheiser not writing is a choice or to really take advantage of that platform, you, you can't yeah, just You can't do a five-day-a-week show and write. That would seem impossible. Yeah, I want to split the baby for as long as I can. Like, I don't know what my next television thing is going to be, but I'd like it to be contemporaneous with written magazine journalism. Um, both for my credibility and because I think that's what makes me happiest. And it may well be impossible. <laughs> it may well be impossible. And if it's impossible, what happens? I guess I take the LSAT. <laughs> you go home, tell your mom, I'm going to be a doctor. <laughs> it's finally happening. <laughs> All your dreams are coming true. Hey, Pablo, thanks, man. Thank you so much, dude. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, FreshBooks, and Johnson & Johnson. And thanks very much to Pablo Torre, who made the ballet on time. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero setup developer first environment combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features.